Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Anisha Catherine Murnane was born on August 12, 1981 in Homer, Alaska and went by the nickname Duffy. She earned a master's degree in education and worked as a preschool teacher. 38-year-old Duffy had been teaching school in Honduras, Alaska, and a Montessori school in Seattle, Washington, but after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, she returned to Homer. After moving back, she moved into the Main Tree Supportive House, an apartment complex at 3971 Main Street. Since Duffy didn't drive, she basically walked wherever she wanted to go. On October 17, 2019, she left her apartment at 12.13 p.m. and then can be seen on camera walking east on Pioneer Avenue. She was headed to her 1 o'clock medical appointment at the SVT Health and Wellness Clinic on East End Road about a mile away. However, she never arrived and has never been heard from again. Two days later, she was reported missing. Although Duffy's bipolar disorder was stable and she had shown improvement with medication, she was still classified as a vulnerable and dependent adult. Search dogs tracked her scent from her apartment to Pioneer Avenue, where it stopped right past the Thai Cosmic Kitchen in front of Kachimic Bay Campus, indicating she may have gotten into a vehicle either willingly or by force. When the Homer Police Department was unable to find her, they hired a special investigator to work on her case solely. Several persons of interest were interviewed over the course of the next two years, including a man named Kirby Fellini Calderwood. In April 2022, a call to a tip line gave numerous details about the crime and identified Kirby Calderwood as the killer. Calderwood had previously lived in Homer before moving to Utah, The tip said he abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered Duffy. He allegedly knew Duffy due to being employed by a local behavioral health service and having worked at the apartment where she lived. He had actually been a person of interest in the investigation, but that information was never released to the public. The tipster knew facts about the case that had not been publicized and said Calderwood still had Duffy's watch. A look into his past would uncover sexual assault allegations from his first and second wives. He also disclosed to his first wife that he had an addiction to pornography and had intentionally harmed animals from a young age. His second wife claimed that Calderwood told her that he thought he might be a sociopath since he never felt remorse. It also was discovered that he had an extensive history of abuse violent sexual behavior toward women, and fantasized about torturing and killing someone. Calderwood and his second wife lived in Utah, but divorced in 2016. Calderwood then left Utah for Alaska. Once in Alaska, he began dating a local woman, and in 2017, they moved in together. 
In 2018, the couple moved in with her parents while they searched for an apartment which they finally found in April 2019. In October 2019, his girlfriend left the country for a trip without him. When she returned on the 21st, she found her new bath towels had been ruined with bleach and that both bathrooms smelled of bleach. She said when she confronted him about it, he got very angry. She also discovered a bag in their garage containing a set of shower clips, a dog collar, a costume corset that she had previously used in theater plays, and four of her knitting needles. The corset and knitting needles both had dried blood on them. The tipster was later revealed to be his third wife, and she told the investigator that she confronted Calderwood about the bag and its contents, and once again, he became very angry. Duffy disappeared on October 17, 2019, four days before the woman returned home from her trip. After Duffy's disappearance, Calderwood married for a third time and returned to Utah. When he was interviewed in May 2021, he stated that for four or five months in or about the fall of 2018, he worked at the Main Tree Supportive House, where he met Anisha Murnane. On May 5, 2022, search warrants were conducted on Calderwood's car and at his home on Quincy Avenue in Ogden, Utah, where they found a machete and several large knives covered with dried blood. As he was leaving his home, the police performed a traffic stop and arrested him. Upon searching his home, they found Duffy's Timex watch, along with her missing person flyer. His wife said Carwood admitted that he had tortured and killed Duffy, threw her phone in a nearby lake, and disposed of her body in a dumpster. Calderwood then confessed that he had prepared a crawl space in his girlfriend's parents' house to be a torture site since the parents were out of town until December 2019. He had not specifically intended to kill her, but was driving around looking for a victim when he saw her. He offered her a ride to her destination, saying he had to stop somewhere first to get a phone charger. He then took Duffy to his girlfriend's parents' home, pushed her into the crawl space, and sexually assaulted and killed her. He reportedly disposed of her body by wrapping it in thick plastic trash bags, putting it in a fish tote, and leaving it in a dumpster. It was also discovered that in 2021, he had confessed to his wife about the murder of Duffy. In May 2022, Carterwood was charged with kidnapping, first- and second-degree murder, and tampering with physical evidence. In September 2022, a grand jury indicted Carterwood on multiple felony charges, including murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault, carrying a possible sentence of 99 years. Carterwood remains in Utah and is currently awaiting trial. Angel Christine Armston was born on November 20, 1974, to parents John and Jackie and raised in Mentor, Ohio. At the age of 17, she attended Mentor High School and was described as a well-liked person who was fun and outgoing. She loved to drive around town in her 1981 Honda Civic, playing music and hanging out with her friends. She also worked part-time at a burger place at the Great Lakes Mall. On Friday, July 31, 1992, Angel told her mother she was heading to the burger joint to pick up her paycheck and run some errands. After leaving, her family would never see her again. 
Angel would often spend the night with friends, and when she didn't arrive home by the next morning, her family wasn't immediately concerned. Her mother, Jackie, wasn't very strict, and Angel didn't have rules when it came to checking in with her. Her dad was a long-haul truck driver, so he was often away from home, which would have added to the lack of rules. On Sunday, August 2nd, Angel's older brother drove to the Great Lakes Mall where he saw Angel's car. He went over to it, and when he looked inside, he saw Angel's purse and hairbrush lying on the seat. He called their mother, who came down and collected Angel's car. Still thinking Angel was probably with her best friend, Stacy, she called Stacy's house, but there was no answer. This was when Angel's mother began to worry and decided to report her daughter missing. When asked why she waited two days to report Angel missing, Jackie said she was under the impression she had to wait 48 hours. Once again, Jackie turned to Angel's best friend, Stacy. The two were inseparable, but on this particular weekend, Stacy had been baking cookies at her sister's house. So when Jackie told her she couldn't find Angel, Stacy was surprised, but said she had no idea where Angel could be and hadn't seen her at all that weekend. This was horrifying news to Jackie, who had assumed that her daughter had been with Stacy all along. The police immediately launched a search and examined Angel's car. However, there were no signs of foul play or anything being stolen. Investigators then began to look into the possibility that Angel may have been abducted. Her car was dusted for fingerprints and dozens were found. However, they were all traced back to Angel's family and friends, basically making them all suspects. Her father was ruled out because he was able to provide proof that he was several states away when she disappeared. Angel's co-workers said that she never showed up to get her paycheck, but they surprised detectives when they said they might know who was involved in her disappearance. They told them about one of the male managers who liked to prey on the young female workers. He was often caught lurking nearby when they changed into their work uniforms and was fired for sexual harassment after multiple complaints of inappropriate touching. When investigators looked into the man, they found that he had a record of inappropriate contact with underage girls. The workers explained that the manager had specifically focused on Angel, often showing her extra attention, watching her work, and making sexual comments toward her. They also said he had found every reason to talk and get close to Angel in the cramped kitchen. This information launched him to the top of the suspect list. Investigators quickly tracked him down, but he denied having anything to do with her disappearance. He said he hadn't seen Angel since they worked together and had been nowhere near the Great Lakes Mall on the day she disappeared. In fact, he had been working at another fast food chain at that time and even had the timesheets to prove it. However, investigators didn't let go of the theory that Angel's disappearance had something to do with the fast food restaurant. They once again questioned the employees and manager and uncovered a secret that Angel had been keeping from her family. She had recently been fired for showing up late and the paycheck she was picking up was going to be her last. Eventually, everyone she worked with was ruled out as a suspect. Since Stacy and Angel were so close, investigators decided to turn their attention back to her. They asked her to come in for questioning, and after a four-hour-long interview, they were left with a possible suspect, Mark Sodka. 
Mark was a 19-year-old boy who had just graduated with honors from Mentor High. Stacy would also provide one last piece of information that would break the case wide open. While both she and Angel had a crush on Mark, it was Angel who slept with him over the summer and was pregnant by him when she disappeared. Stacy said that Angel was going to tell Mark about the pregnancy, hoping it would convince him to be in a relationship with her. However, unbeknownst to Angel, Mark had only used her for sex and wanted nothing to do with her, especially since he was heading off to college the following semester. After learning this new information, police immediately hauled Mark in for questioning. However, he denied that he and Angel were together. He said they slept together once, but he hadn't seen her since. He claimed that he had a steady girlfriend who he had been with for the past two years. He said that on the night Angel disappeared, he worked until 5 p.m. and then went to the mall to get a gift for his girlfriend. He then said later on he met up with friends for pizza. Investigators checked with Mark's work and confirmed he had been there. They then drove the route to the stores where Mark said he shopped for the gift and found that it was possible to make the trip in the length of time he stated. Finally, they spoke to the friends that Mark claimed he joined up with that night, and they confirmed they had met up at 9 p.m. for pizza and a movie. However, Mark couldn't produce any witnesses for his alleged shopping trip. Also, when investigators questioned employees of the stores that Mark claimed to have entered, nobody recognized him. This led investigators to doubt the shopping part of Mark's story. However, when given a lie detector test, he passed. And due to this and his cooperation, he was ruled out as a suspect. Police then went back to the theory that Angel either ran away or was abducted from her car by another perpetrator. Angel knew her mother wouldn't consent to an abortion, so they thought maybe she had run away. Weeks went by with no leads until a tip came in from a prisoner at the Lake County Detention Center. He claimed that there was a prostitute working in Cleveland, Ohio by the name of Angel that matched Angel Armston's description, a blonde between 17 to 20 years old with a pretty smile who was picked up walking alone on the street. That description fit Angel to a T. The inmate claimed he had seen Angel just before he was arrested and that she was hired by a man called Pimp Daddy. Detectives contacted Cleveland detectives who confirmed they knew Pimp Daddy and that he ran his business in a two-story building on the outskirts of town. However, after raiding the building and bringing in the girl by the name of Angel, she refused to talk. So they contacted Jackie and asked her to come to Cleveland to make the identification. Unfortunately, the girl was not Jackie's daughter and it was another dead end. While it wasn't the angel they were looking for, they were at least able to reunite her with her family. In the meanwhile, Angel's friends and family made flyers and had them strewn throughout the community. They also reached out to businesses, charities, and organizations to scrape together a $10,000 reward for Angel's return. Within a month, thousands of tips were pouring into the Mentor Police Department, but none of them led anywhere. Unfortunately, over time, her case grew cold, but Jackie never gave up hope. As the months passed, one person continued to stand out to investigators, the fiancé of one of Angel's friends. He barely knew Angel, but was also keen on talking to police and reporters about the case. He was known for inserting himself into the investigation and constantly spouted his theories. 
Police decided to take a closer look at him and theorized that he might have hit on Angel, but had his advances rejected and retaliated in return, or maybe he slept with Angel and feared she would tell his fiance. However, it would lead to another dead end after he provided a solid alibi for the night she disappeared. On December 15, 1992, a local man and his dog were hunting when the dog picked up a scent and headed toward a drainage ditch. That's when the man noticed something wrapped in a sheet with a rope tied around it. As he pulled back the fabric, he spotted what appeared to be a human hand. When investigators arrived, they found a badly decomposed body that had been lying there face down for months, around the same time Angel went missing. Dental records would sadly confirm the remains belonged to Angel Armston. She had suffered blunt force trauma to her head and had been stabbed twice in her chest. She had been bound with green duct tape that had blue carpet fibers stuck to it. They began looking at homes of friends and family, including Mark Sotka. He had been staying at a house that his family owned around the time Angel went missing, but since that time, it had been sold. However, the new family allowed detectives to conduct a search. The new owners had completely remodeled the house, except for two rooms, including the basement. When investigators went down into the basement, they noticed blue carpet squares on the steps. So they collected the fibers to compare against the ones found on the duct tape. They also found a section of clothesline in the laundry room cut out, similar to the clothesline that Angel had been bound with. A crime lab tested the items recovered, and they matched the items found at the crime scene. Investigators also found spots of blood on the carpets, stairs, and walls, along with a bloody thumbprint. Mark Sodka was then arrested for her murder five months after she disappeared. However, Mark remained confident that investigators did not have enough evidence to charge him in the case. Meanwhile, they began examining his car and found traces of blood in the trunk that he had tried to clean. They also found a roll of green duct tape. When confronted with the new evidence, he finally admitted that he did something stupid and confessed to Angel's murder. He said he took Angel to his house, intending to have sex with her, but when she told him she was pregnant and he was the father, he lost his temper. He insisted Angel have an abortion, but she refused. He punched her several times, and she fell down. He ran up the stairs and got a knife out of the garage, came back down, and stabbed her twice in the chest. He was asked if she was alive or dead before he stabbed her, and he replied she was alive because he could see her breathing. Mark then bound her body and dumped her. Afterward, he cleaned up before meeting his friends for pizza and a movie that night. Mark had sat around eating pepperoni pizza and laughing with his friends. All the while, Angel's body was lying in a shallow grave. He then led investigators to a roadside where he threw Angel's car keys and a remote site where he threw the knife. However, the knife was never recovered. In February 1993, Mark pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to life in prison. Investigators believe he passed the polygraph due to his lack of remorse. In 2013, her loved ones began the long fight to keep Mark from being paroled. In June 2013, he had his first hearing before the Ohio Parole Board. Angel's family and friends fought to ensure he was not released from Grafton Correctional Institution and his parole was denied. However, this month, July 2023, after serving 30 years, he will be eligible for parole again. 
Her loved ones are asking the community to sign the petition on change.org. Also, if you're interested, you can submit a letter to justiceforangelormston at gmail.com and they will submit it to the parole board. Dana Laskowski was born on February 23, 1965, and lived in Puyallup, Washington. At the age of 36, Dana was recently separated from her husband and became a single mother to her nine-year-old triplet daughters. Those who knew her well said she loved life and especially loved being a mom. In 2001, Dana was employed as a nanny, but on August 31st, she failed to show up for work and the couple she worked for made numerous attempts to contact her. This was so out of character for her, they called the police and requested a welfare check. Officers made their way into Dana's home through an unlocked back door and made a shocking discovery. Dana was found lying face down on the couch, strangled to death, with one arm twisted behind her back. Dana's ex-husband, Stan, who she was on bitter terms with, immediately became a suspect. However, he told investigators that he took their daughters camping the night of the murder and provided a gas receipt to corroborate his alibi and was subsequently ruled out as a suspect. Investigators then turned to others in her life, including a man named Michael in Vancouver, Canada, whom Dana had been dating. They were on the verge of a breakup and phone records proved they spoke the night of her death. Michael told investigators Dana seemed tense and didn't say, I love you, back. After their phone call, he decided to drive to Puyallup and visit her to discuss their relationship, but he was stopped at the border and not allowed entry into Canada. Border Patrol records corroborated Michael's alibi, and he too was ruled out as a suspect. The next suspect was a man named Patrick, who installed Dana's cable at her new house. He became obsessed with her and began stalking her not long before her death, leaving flowers and strange poems on her porch. In one letter, Patrick wrote that he was watching Dana and mentioned things only someone with access to her home would know. Dana told her aunt and her employer that if anything ever happened to her, to look at Patrick. However, Patrick insisted that he had nothing to do with Dana's death and even offered up a sample of his DNA. He claimed he was working at the time of the murder, after which he went out for drinks with friends. Patrick's employer and friends corroborated his alibi and ruled him out. Investigators then began looking at the memorial book from Dana's funeral, hoping the killer had left a message. What they found broke the case wide open. One month after the murder, Dana's 17-year-old niece, Amanda, left a cryptic message in a memorial book in her honor. It read, I'm so sorry I wasn't a better niece for you. 34 days clean and sober. It's all for you. There was something off about Amanda's post. She appeared remorseful over Dana's death and possibly knew something investigators didn't. Amanda had a tumultuous relationship with her parents, and Dana was like a second mom to her, often letting her stay with her. Dana even unlocked the back door to her house so that Amanda and her best friend, 17-year-old Emily Lawnberg, could sleep over or shower if they needed to. Amanda and Emily were both heavy drug users, and they hung out with a troubled group of friends who called themselves the Park Rats. Amanda was then called in for questioning and told investigators that she had run into a friend named Blaine before Dana's murder. 
She said he made a pass at her, but she rejected him, so she theorized that he might have murdered Dana out of revenge. Since Blaine lived in a different state, the detective reached out to one of his young informants who dropped a bombshell. He said Blaine didn't kill Dana. Amanda's best friend, Emily Lonborg, did. Two other Park Rats members also told the police that Emily killed Dana and bragged about it. At first, investigators were baffled at the idea that a petite girl standing at five foot two would have been strong enough to strangle someone to death, but it turned out that Emily was into wrestling and weightlifting. She was so strong, she was nicknamed the Mutant. Several friends claimed her go-to move was to twist one arm behind someone's back, the same position Dana had been found in. Investigators attempted to question Emily, but she was very uncooperative and couldn't provide a solid alibi. They obtained a search warrant for her home and found a diary that included a bucket list of things she wanted to accomplish. Number nine on the list read, kill someone and get away with it. In another entry written after an argument with Amanda, Emily wrote that she could strangle Amanda just like her aunt. Just as surprising, investigators found a black t-shirt belonging to Dana in Emily's room and discovered that she was wearing it in photos taken at her funeral. Amanda was questioned again, and this time, she admitted that Emily had murdered her aunt. She said they walked into Dana's home through the unlocked back door high on drugs. They asked her for money to buy more drugs, but she refused and told them to leave. Dana placed her hand on Emily's shoulder to guide her to the door. That's when Emily put Dana in a headlock, twisted her arm behind her back, and pushed her face into the couch. Amanda claimed she turned away because she did not want to get involved, at which point she heard gurgling, followed by the sound of a crack. After Dana died, the two robbed her and left. On March 3, 2003, Emily was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. She was tried as an adult and pleaded not guilty. Prosecutors offered Amanda immunity if she testified against Emily at the trial. However, they were concerned that she would change her mind at the last second. They also feared that the jury would not convict Emily based purely on circumstantial evidence and that she would walk free. They ultimately offered her a plea deal for six and a half years and she accepted. While Dana's family was relieved that some justice was reached, they were disappointed at how little time Emily served after killing Dana. Emily was released from prison in 2009 after only serving five years and has since changed her name to Emily Seabock. She then married a man named Darren Wickman and the two had children together before divorcing in 2013. Taliba Islam was born on November 18, 1995, in Tarrant County, Texas. Taliba was the youngest and tallest of three sisters and was said to have a very infectious smile. At the age of 20, Taliba was living in Fort Worth, Texas with her boyfriend, Chris Ravel, and their three-month-old son. Chris was allegedly abusive toward Taliba, and he had even been investigated for an assault against her when she was nine months pregnant. On top of being abusive, Taliba's family said he was also allegedly very manipulative and had a history of violence against other women. On January 16, 2006, Taliba allegedly brought their infant son to visit Ravel at his mother's home at 1916 Bay Oaks Court in Fort Worth. 
After that, she was never seen again. A couple of days later, he told her family that after an argument, she left their infant with him, got into an SUV with someone he didn't know, and never returned. He then gave their son to Taliba's family, stating that he couldn't care for him. Five days after her disappearance, he reported her missing. Ten years later, on October 10, 2016, Tiffany Johnson had just broken up with Ravel and was making him gather his belongings from her apartment. Inside the apartment was Tiffany's twin brother, Asher, along with two other people. 25-year-old Tiffany was last seen arguing with Ravel outside of her apartment building. After that, she was never seen again. When Ravel re-entered her apartment, Asher asked him where his sister was, and he replied that she jumped into another car and drove off. Asher, suspecting something was wrong, went downstairs to check on her and noticed Ravel's car backed up to the apartment with the trunk open. Upon noticing Asher, he sped off. When authorities arrived, they found Tiffany's phone, car keys, and one of her socks in the parking lot. They also searched Ravel's mother's home and found the tank top that Tiffany was wearing the night she vanished. Ravel was then arrested and charged with kidnapping, and in August 2019, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. At his sentencing hearing, Ravel's sister took the stand and testified that she was sitting in her bedroom at her parents' house while Chris, Taliba, and their baby were in his bedroom nearby. They were arguing in his room when his sister heard Taliba yell, You broke my jaw. After that, she was never heard from again. On March 2, 2023, 17 years after her disappearance, Taliba's remains were found near railroad tracks in the 900 block of South Hughes Avenue in Fort Worth. Unfortunately, they were unable to determine her cause and manner of death. At this time, the police haven't identified Reveal as a suspect and said there's no hard evidence to link him to her case. As of July 2023, Tiffany's body has never been found. Virginia Jenny Hannon was born on August 12, 1924, in Boston, Massachusetts. At the age of 59, Jenny was a widow living alone at 57 West Street in Pembroke, Massachusetts, and worked as a cook in the cafeteria of Bryantville Elementary School. She was described as a good person who was great with the kids. While she didn't have any children of her own, she still loved the little ones she fed each day. Those who knew her said she loved tending to stray animals and baking treats for the children in the neighborhood. She also loved bingo and was known to put ice in her beer. They said she was just an overly fun person to be around. Jenny also took care of her father-in-law, who lived two doors down from her own home. On Saturday, February 11, 1984, Jenny rode four miles southwest to the nearby town of Hanson to attend evening mass with her friend Dolly Harmouth. After church, the two women drove seven miles south to Halifax, where they had dinner at BR's restaurant. Afterward, Dolly dropped Jenny off at her home around 7.30 p.m., and this was the last time she was ever seen alive. On Monday, February 13th, her father-in-law's housekeeper stopped by Jenny's house to get a key to her father-in-law's home. Instead, she found Jenny beaten, stabbed, and strangled to death with a sheet pulled over her. Unfortunately, with little to no leads, the murder would go unsolved for the next 40 years. 
In May 2018, prosecutors began working with forensic experts at the Massachusetts State Police Crime Lab to test evidence for DNA. In January 2019, investigators reanalyzed the evidence and discovered all of the DNA evidence from the crime scene belonged to one unknown man, but they were unable to identify the suspect. Prosecutors reached out to two companies, Identifinders International and Parabon Nanolabs, to conduct genetic genealogy testing. While Identifinders was able to provide two possible last names for the suspect, investigators didn't actually have a suspect. Finally, in 2020, detectives would get a break from an unlikely source. A person came forward and said that a year ago, his friend Jesse Alward confessed to murdering a woman in Pembroke when he was 22 years old. Alward died on February 3, 2020, at the age of 58, and his friend called the authorities with the information the very next day. After receiving the tip, police obtained a warrant for the blood of Alward, whose body was still at Brockton Hospital, to be tested against the DNA they had. Those results proved that Alward, who was never on the investigator's radar, was definitely Jenny's killer. Alward's obituary said he was known for having a unique personality and at some point owned his own paving and seal coating business. It also said he was creative with building, generous to homeless people, intelligent and independent, and enjoyed working on patent development. Unfortunately, Alward never provided a motive in the case. One theory is he learned about Jeannie's inheritance and entered her home looking for money and murdered her in the process. Supposedly, it was widely known around town about Jeannie's recent inheritance. However, there is no evidence to support this theory. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.